You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. There is so much that needs to change. There is so much we can all do to be better allies and supporters, better listeners, better at stepping into our black neighbours' shoes and having empathy for their experiences in a white, privileged world. We like to think that in the arts, we are open to creativity from all viewpoints. But you only need to take a cursory glance across the spectrum of art forms to see that we don't practice what we preach. For everywhere, there is a paucity of people of colour, women, gender non-conforming, transgender, all of which are subject to a long-standing hegemony. The arts without black artists would be a feeble, monotone, like a major seventh without its third, or a book with the middle torn out. Diversity should be the beating heart of the arts. If we believe the arts to be a place where we explore the human experience, then it has to be a full choir of voices, a full Pantone book of colours, a casserole of spices. For if we fall short of that, then we fall short as humans. And whilst we are shut out of our usual arts venues, let us use this time to become more familiar with some of the incredible black and brown painters, sculptors, writers, filmmakers and composers who inspire, create and portray a world we all need to experience. And, to quote President Obama, whose limitless potential deserves to flourish and thrive. For the next hour, though, we have some local places to visit. And the first is one that you will actually be able to physically visit again next week, if that is something you feel comfortable doing. Ragtag Cinema has been such a comfort over the past couple of months, showing us films on our sofa and plunging into the world of digital media to bring us all together to chat and comment. And waiting for us inside, as she does every week, is Ragtag Cinema's director, Barbie Banks. Hi, Barbie. Hi, how are you? I know, I'm like everybody else, I know everyone's hearts are heavy this week. And across the arts, people are looking at their programming and wondering what they can do to be better supporters and allies of our black and brown communities. And I wondered what conversations you had at Ragtag over the past week or so. We are made up of a really diverse group of people. And it's been heartwarming to be in our meetings where it starts off every single meeting this week has started off with checking in with each other. Um, There's several people who work for us that have been protesting and so checking in on them and what they need and and then really thinking about what we do with cinema and how we can play a role in this movement, you know, and the biggest thing for us, especially with documentary film, is that we support and create a space for people of color to tell stories about people of color. There's a history in filmmaking, but especially in documentary of white people telling the stories of people of color and 
sometimes it's done really well, but it's still not the right thing. You know, we should be lifting up people of color who are creators and making sure that they have a chance to have their film exhibited and shared to the world. And so that's really where our commitment lies is, you know, we don't, we currently in our, even in our strategic plan for the next five years, don't have plans to fund creators, but we do want to see who we're exhibiting and really take a close examination of who's telling the stories that we're showing. You had a series back in, I think it was February, you had a Black Independence series, which was great. I mean, is that something that is a, an annual and or that you could repeat more often? Yeah, that's the plan. So Ted Rogers, who is our programmer, he is a white man. He is married to a woman of color and he recently had a son. I'm going to get emotional. <laughs> um and so he just has a really unique perspective of raising a black child in America and what that from his lens of privilege, but then what he should be doing to make sure his son grows up in a, a safer world. And I, I do think art uh, creates empathy. And so letting people into those stories to have a better, uh, more love and understanding of somebody who's different than you. So sorry, I didn't think I'd get so emotional, but um, another thing that we're doing um, is developing with our education team, a list of films that we've shown at true false and ragtag that we believe you can show in your home and have discussions around it. So while some people don't feel safe to go out to a protest or, or especially in this pandemic, we do believe it's important to have those conversations and movies are a great way to start thinking about them. So in the next couple of weeks, we'll be releasing that list where you can see them and some discussion questions that our media literacy team has put together to really start talking about those things. It's weird working for an arts organization because there's times where I feel like, are we doing enough? Is this where our resources should be put? And then you see, a great film like do the right thing came out, you know, 30 years ago now, and it still resonates today. I mean, the ending of that film is exactly what's happening in our world right now. And so I think of those films and how hopefully watching them can open people's hearts and minds and empower people of color to know that we are here with them and we want their stories to be told and we want them to live in a safe world. I think that when you look across all the arts, and we've talked about this before, that if you're a woman or you're a person of color or, or also a lot of people with disabilities, I mean, you are not given a chance to be represented fairly alongside the white male domination across across all the arts, whether you're a painter or a filmmaker. Yeah, yeah and I think that's what the Black Independence series did is, you know, there we had a film by Barry Jenkins who made Moonlight that one best picture and it's not his best piece of work you know but it's important that we show those films because that's what was being created he was given a very small budget to make that film and he did it and while compared to moonlight yeah it's it's low budget and there's problems with it but we should still be taking that in we shouldn't only see a film if we think it's the perfect film because the people who make those films are white dudes (laughs) and so let's change our standard a little. It's not lowering it. It's just adjusting a little to be willing to experience other things, you know, and, 
And we we work really closely with this group called Brown Girls Doc Mafia, and they um, fund and do professional development for women of color who are making documentaries. And that is the group that is least represented in film in general, but also in documentaries. And they come to the fest every year. They, they kind of are, I know they would hate this word, but they're disruptors and that they come to a festival like true false that has, you know, a lot of white people at it and they make connections. They show people the great work that they're doing. And, and so we're also encouraging people to make donations to that organization because they're they're the ones who are allowing black women to tell their stories. I love that. Um, so you are on the cusp of opening up again after the pandemic. You said, I think next week you're opening. And last week when we spoke, you were going to talk to the city and they were going to look at your plans and make any changes or additions to it. What did they say? Are you good to go for next week? Yes, we are. So they approved our plan. We are going to do kind of two different things. Our big theater will be used for film watching like you've always experienced and then our smaller theater will be able uh be able to rent it out for what we're calling your quarantine <laughs> so your group of people that you're comfortable hanging out with for two hours to watch a movie you can rent our cinema and we'll show that film to you guys you can order food from uprise they'll deliver it right to you and i'm excited i think it's going to be a new way of experiencing ragtag which is good. You know, we just want people to show up and kind of like test the waters. Like, is this, are we ready for this? <laughs> are you ready? I mean, do you feel personally ready for it? I do. I feel, um, you know, this week has kind of made us reconsider what film we're going to be opening with. So I, we originally said singing in the rain as like an escapist film, but now we're sort of thinking maybe we need to do an additional film that, lets us examine some of the topics that have been happening this week. And so outside of knowing exactly what that title is, I feel really ready. It looks a little different in Uprise and Ragtag. There's a lot of plexiglass and lots more hand sanitizer, but I feel ready. I think people want to come out and experience some stuff. And we've seen trends in lots of different places that show that people feel, even if COVID is still out there, they want to try to get back to normal as much as they can. So and what's good about it is we can try this one weekend and if it fails, we'll try something new. You know, we're a pretty agile organization to be able to try that. Right. Now you have one new film opening this Friday virtually in the virtual world called Tommaso. Tell us a little bit about that one. Yeah, you know, this is one good thing about my job is I get to have a film history education <laughs> as Ted picks all of our films. And so this film is by Abel Ferrara. And um, he's done several films, King of New York, The Lieutenant, ones that have been influential in the film world. And then this one is really about, it's sort of an autobiography of sorts. It's about a filmmaker and his relationship with his wife and, and child. And Willem Dafoe plays the main character. You'll be happy to hear this, that <laughs> many critics are saying that his acting as this is better than the acting in The Lighthouse. Wow! There's really great articles online about the filmmaker. I've been trying to read through those before I rent this film to kind of know 
who he is. He's an interesting person. I read that he, one of his early movies was a porn movie that he ended up having to star in because the actor who was supposed to be playing the lead was not quite ready for a particular role. And so he had to step Yeah, that in. sounds suspicious to me. <laughs> he, You know, in some ways he does fit into that white male box that we were talking about earlier of like, he's been given a lot of resources, but... They're good films, you know, and it's uh, he's based out of New York and has done a lot of great things for the film community there. You know, it's it's not a hard hitting film. It's just uh, a joy to watch. And it's good directing and good acting and a lot of good pieces in there. And so different than what the other ones that we've been offering, you know, it's not a doc or anything, but I think you'll see some feelings of autobiography-ness in this film. It's interesting that this is showing and you still have another film, which we didn't talk about last week, called Caro Diario by Nanni Moretti, which is another Italian film and is kind of, again, a kind of a deconstructed docu-comedy, a little bit about a filmmaker. (laughs) Yes, that one is like... If True False had been around in the early 90s, that film would have played it. You know, it's like a perfect True False film uh, where it like crosses that line of documentary and, and fiction and nonfiction. And so both of them are, are great films to watch. I think, you know, they'll stick around through. Uh, we're going to continue doing virtual cinema through the end of June, even once we reopen. I think it's a good chance to watch these films. Both of these, uh, this film Tommaso is in the running for Academy Awards, so it will be one of the first films that's released digitally and not in a theater that will be considered, they're hoping that will be considered for an Academy Award. It's just a different world out there in the film world right now. It is. Well, Barbie, thank you so much for being here in our film world every week and all the time in Colombia. And we'll check back in with you next week and see how the beginning of opening up has gone. Yes, definitely. We'll see you then. Bye, Barbie. Bye. From a ragtag cinema, we're going to swing a few blocks east and visit a place that under usual circumstances would be a hive of activity this morning. Golf carts zipping hither and thither, an army of welcoming volunteers and a caravan of artists arriving from across the country. But this year, Stevens Lake Park lies quiet. And here to chat about the non-art in the park is Columbia Art League's Executive Director, Kelsey Hammond. Hello, Q2. Hello, Q1. Well, now this weekend would have been the 62nd Art in the Park and also your first as the executive director or fest queen. Um, (laughs) I notched up 11 Art in the Parks from numbers 49 to 59. So I feel like if I had to choose a specialist subject for a quiz show, Art in the Park would probably be it. (laughs) Although the Eurovision Song Contest would be a close second. Oh, certainly. Now, and I know a lot of people, artists, visitors, and many of the volunteers and Supercore team are super sad that they won't get to hang out together in a steaming hot park this weekend. (laughs) So today we're going to have a little reminiscence about past art in the parks, and you get to ask me burning questions that will help you better understand the essence of the festival so you are ready for next year. Yes. Take it away, Q2. I feel very strange that I'm not sweating out there in the world, uh, you know, currently. (laughs) And I know there's sort of a, yes, there is a sadness. And there's also kind of a a weird, like, well, it's really hard work, too, Mm, you know, so, mm. but I think that the, the overall feeling more than anything is that the people who have been doing this for so long, 
won't get to see each other this weekend. And that's the saddest part, you know, seeing the artists who've been there before and all that. That's what I understand. So, um, so yeah, I feel sad too, even though I haven't done it before. It's weird. So I have some questions for you. It's true because I want to next year feel like I am, you know, part of the veteran crew that I've been, <laughs> I've done it before. So about the origins of art in the park, I know that it is a similar time frame to the art league itself. Can you tell me more about how it started or what it looked like at first? Well, all I know about the origins of art in the park is that it wasn't always in a park. It was called the Art Fair. <laughs> um, and it used to be downtown on the sidewalks. There is a photograph in one of the boxes of memorabilia that is now with the State Historical Society, taken on the corner, I believe, of 8th and Cherry, I guess where the parking garage maybe is now. I think that's where it was. And it's just a handful of little stalls and somebody looking at a piece of art. You know, it's not it's not very an expansive photograph. It's not kind of a view of the street. And and that was dated 1959, I believe, or 58. 58 or 59. It was one of the early ones. And so that seems to have been the origin story of it. And over the years, it moved. It was in several places downtown. For a long while, it was under what used to be those concrete canopies that ran along Broadway that were taken down Mm -hmm. a decade or more ago. So there's a lot of photographs from the early 70s of the art fair underneath those canopies. It was at Peace Park for a couple of years. One year, I believe it was even out at Shelter, but I think we trashed the place and they said please don't come back you know too many too much footfall on on their lovely park um so it has been in many places and then of course for many many years it was on the little patch of grass that was in front of the Mecklenburg theater on kind of Stevens Green and so that's really where it established itself as an event on grass and in a park and then the year before I took over so it would have been 2006 it moved down to the brand new Stevens Lake Park and it was one of the very first events down there and that first year there were a lot of teething problems as there are when you move a venue (laughs) and so I came in in 2007 and I just had this festival of chaos that had happened the year before that needed to be sorted out so It was great. I mean, it was really like uh, reinventing it. And that's always fun when you start something new. You're not, you know, you're stepping into something that's been established for so long and that makes it a little more difficult. Whereas I felt like, okay, this is all new. This is up to us to solve this problem and move forward. So it felt like a a new show that first year in 2007. Yeah, I was going to say that I think was probably the first year that I attended Art in the Park because I moved here in 2006 um, in August. So I haven't been to every art in the park. I've been to several, but I remember being heavily pregnant and sort of, (laughs) or or about to be pregnant, just sort of like, what's happening here? It was so hot, but being really excited and impressed by, even then it felt like it was well laid out and, you know, made sense and felt like it had been established already. I wouldn't have guessed that that was sort of a reimagining of it. Yeah, my first year. I remember when I first started, I started in on the 1st of February. And of course, Art in the Park is in June. And nothing had been done. We'd had an interim director <laughs> who was just kind of trying to keep everything together for the three months since the previous director had resigned. And so dealing with Art in the Park was just, you know, one thing too many. And so none of the invitations to attend had gone out to the artist. There was just kind of a, a pile of stuff on a desk. And I brought the binder, the the previous year's binder home, and I was reading it on the sofa. And of course, my husband has been involved with Art in the Park since he was a small child. Yes, there is a photograph. 
photographic evidence of that. And I said to him, you have to help me with this. I, I don't know how to make any sense of this. And he said, well, I don't know anything. And I just burst <laughs> into tears. And I'm like, I can't do this. This is just too huge. And so between, you know, the first week in February and June, everything had to happen. So it is a miracle that that first year happened. And as you are experiencing now, there was just there was a handful of people, a core team that have yeah. been doing it for years and they know the event inside and out. And having them on your team, having them on your side is huge. And, and because of some of the issues that had happened the year before, I had to win some friends back to the Art in the Park team. And, and luckily, because everybody loves Tom so much, right, my husband, right. then everyone <laughs> said, oh, well, if you're married to Tom, then you must be okay too. So we'll come right. back and help you. <laughs> It was really Tom. <laughs> well, thank him for me because that's a, <laughs> that's definitely a worthy thing. Because I was wondering too, sort of, it's called a fine arts arts and crafts fair, like the emphasis on the fine art. And mm. what do you feel like? Do you think that that has been since the beginning? Is that something that you leaned on heavily, or what was the curation process of the artists like from when you were? doing it? That's a good question. And I'm not 100% sure how things were done in the past. I mean, back when I first started, there was no online opportunity to submit images. So people sent in slides, like transparency slides, and we'd set the projector up and I'd get a group of, you know, the first year was really just all local people, you know, artists that I get in and we'd look through all the images anonymously. They wouldn't have any names in them. Of course, still still done that way. Yeah. Yeah. And then we would choose people. And so that has changed a lot. But I think that one of the criticisms that maybe I heard was that Art in the Park had become a little fuzzy around the edges in terms of the quality of the work that was being Mm -hmm. shown. And so you did have a mixture of people, but the kind of the crafty thing was beginning to creep in. I don't know that we ever had crocheted toilet roll holders, but I think it was... (laughs) My friend said it was kind of a duck and bunny event for a while. So I really wanted to emphasize that fine art. And I began to research other festivals that were happening around the Midwest and this kind of idea of the fine art and fine crafts was really important. And a lot of artists, I wanted to attract more artists from a wider geographical area and they were not going to come to an event that they thought sold crochet toilet roll holders these were fine artists and so that was really important it's like one begat the other you had to have this solid group of artists and then that would grow into more people would hear about it and they would tell their friends and they would say it's a really nice festival it's really well run we'd have good art sales and then you'd be able to spread the love a little bit further so that was important to me yeah yeah, I think that there is a, you know, it's it's nice to go to a place where you feel like, I mean, it's a community event, right? So you want to have, right? you want to have a, a difference in price range, like you don't want to have everything be $500 or more for one item, you want to be able to have anybody be able to come and access art. And I mean, obviously, they can visit and, and look at the art. But you really want to have a price range in there. So I think that's one thing that we, and I know you've done this too, in the past has looked at to kind of make sure we're keeping a broad <laughs> right. a broad range of artwork so that people can invest and buy and feel like they are not only supporting their artists in the community or abroad, but, or, you know, around the nation, but also adding to their own collections and feeling like they were able to take a, in quote, souvenir home that really means something that they can look back on and think, this is time that I spent at this park with my family and kind of really bring that home to being like a Columbia souvenir. 
And I think that's also part of, if you're an art festival artist, then that's part of your strategy for good sales. Because not everybody that walks in your booth can afford a $5,000 painting, but maybe one person can or two people can. So you want to have the original artworks, but you also want to have smaller items, whether that's prints or it's, you know, smaller ceramic items. If you do a big sculpture, maybe you've got Mm -hmm. smaller items. And then you have people who are utilitarian ceramic artists. So it's plates and cups and dishes and all those kind of things. And so that was always part of my message is that, you know, you could come to Art in the Park with $15 and you could go home with something that was unique, that was handmade. Yeah, absolutely. But if you were a corporate buyer or you had a new house and you wanted a giant painting, you could also get that too and everything in between. Yeah. And and so what what are some of your horror stories? (laughs) I mean, if you feel like you can share of sort of like, weather related or rentals that didn't work out or walkie talkies that were broken or even just, (laughs) I mean, I know we all have customer stories, so maybe not (laughs) necessarily those because I assume that you've had some interesting. um, There are always some interesting people, but I think the worst, the worst experience, the worst year was the year of the giant flood. And it had rained and rained and rained all through May. It was just the soggiest, soggiest May. And of course, you know, we're on grass. And and there are certain points of Stevens Lake Park, particularly in the corner where we are, that are kind of low lying. And it was really where the entrance way was. And so, you know, we had all of the tents, we had the layout done. And then the rain kept on coming. And on the morning, on the Friday morning, when we go to set up, Everybody gets there at 7 a.m. And the artists are invited to come a little bit later once we've got things set up. And all the core team arrived and we sat in our cars in the parking lot as the rain came down so hard you couldn't see across the parking lot. And it was bouncing off the ground and it rained for about... I don't know, half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour. And we just all sat there. There was nothing to do. And then finally the the rain stopped (laughs) and we got out and kind of waded into the park. And there was just no way that we could set up the artist village as as we had planned. And at the same time, I got a call from the parks people and they said, the grass is too wet. You can't be on the grass. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You can't tell me that now. This was yesterday's call or last week's call. It is not the call for now. And so um, they said, well, you you definitely can't have any vehicles on the grass. You can't have any golf carts on the grass. And so they said, can't you set up the festival in the parking lot? And I'm like, well, fine, but where are all the artists going to park? They've got trailers. So they said, okay, but you can't drive on the grass. So we had to just stick to the footpath, which meant, you know, you had to carry everybody's tent and their boxes of ceramics and you kind of carry them across the grass and you were literally ankle deep in water. Now, there were some slightly higher areas, and so some of the artists were fine. <laughs> Others, we were just bringing in. We bought every straw bundle that we could find in Colombia to try and, you know, build the ground up. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And then and we had just to put put the artists wherever we could find space next to a gravel area. And they hadn't done that nice the um the nice area between the entrance and the and the spray grounds that they all they renovated and made it all beautiful uh, that wasn't there it was just kind of a gravel area so we moved a ton of artists onto that area and everybody was was really good natured about it they could see that we were struggling there was a few grouchy moments but overall they could see that we were just doing the best that we could do and 
Uh, yeah, I burst into tears several times I'm that sure. morning. I was just like, I am about to just like lie on the ground and pummel my fists into yeah, the wet exactly. earth. exactly. <laughs> just like sink into that water. <laughs> Take me away. So that was oh, probably the worst art in the park moment for me. And, you know, it's funny because last year, Stacey Pottinger, our local photographer, she ended up basically running art in the park over the weekend because Holly, who was our director, she had just gone through the tornado in Jefferson City. And we said, you know what, you sort your life out and your properties and everything, and we'll take care of this. This is only a festival. It doesn't matter. Go and take care of your life. And so Stacey ended up running it. And at one point over the weekend, maybe on the Friday, when there's so many questions on Friday, everyone wants to know, what do we do? Where do we go? What about this? What about that? And it's just like an endless barrage of questions. And it's kind of overwhelming. And she messaged me on the end of Friday and she said, (laughs) "Uh, I feel so bad about that year that you had to deal with the flood. She said, this was a perfect year. She said, I am so overwhelmed. She said, in that year when you were dealing with everything, she said, I was just driving around in a golf cart with a squeaky chicken thinking it was a giant amount of fun. (laughs) The recognition of that year was kind of interesting. Yeah, exactly. Oh, man. (laughs) I think it really does show, though, right, that this is a community event. I mean, it is something that so many volunteers and people have gone to or volunteered at or whatever for years and years and years. And it is obviously it's the Columbia Art League signature event, but it, it really does feel like it is a Columbia tradition, you know, that this, <laughs> that this thing, it feels like people really hopefully, you know, understand when things are a little sideways. <laughs> I, I always said that even if Art in the Park didn't happen, people would just turn up that weekend and look for it. Right. It was just like it grew like <laughs> mushrooms every year in the park. We should just go down there and <laughs> I know, there. I was say, maybe I should put some flags out there that are like, we'll be back next year, friends. Go check out our website. <laughs> yeah, that's not a bad idea, you know, because I mean, so tell me, you are doing a kind of virtual event this year. What is that going to look like? I mean, there's a, a whole infrastructure and things that could happen and we took an early decision to do kind of as much as we could, but also be aware that this is a hard time for the Columbia Art League as well. And and while Art in the Park is our signature event and we do, it is a huge fundraising event for us and things, we have limited staff. So even if it's, even if you do kind of go full out online with a doing your festival online, which a lot of places are doing and more power to them for making it as awesome as it could be for not doing it physically. We are taking a sort of more laid back approach to it. We're going to have all of the artists who were accepted and who accepted our invitation on our website. So there's a a page up and it'll be more clear soon. We're still working on the back end (laughs) a little bit. So it has a photo of, of something that they normally make, you know, something that they turned in. And then it has a, a link to their website so that people can go and actually shop directly with that artist if they are interested or look more at the the jewelry or the you know paintings that they make so they can see more. We are not going to necessarily do like conversations with the artists and um, go visit their homes and all these things through tours and, and virtual stuff just because of the amount of time. We just don't have a big staff. So it's hard to do that. And I think, you know, if this had to happen again for some reason, which please, 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 all the things don't let this happen again. (laughs) um, (laughs) You know, we, I think we could 
take from what we do this year and, you know, apply it for next year and figure out ways to do that. But I think in the heat of the moment of having to make big decisions about what our capacity actually was and, and you know, what our bandwidth could handle, we are going to have kind of a more laid back approach. So we are going to be posting on social media. We're going to be highlighting the artists. We're going to do lots of shout outs. And hopefully people who love art in the park will send me some memories of times that they've had there. <laughs> you know, obviously positive would be better than anything. <laughs> um, um, and then I would love to share those on social media as well. So if anybody has any pictures or memories they want to share and they want to write them down for us, they can send that to the Columbia Art League email, which is either info at org or kelsey at org, And um, we would love to put that up to you just to kind of be able to have and celebrate all of the years that the that art in the park has been able to happen. So like I said, I mean, it really is a huge thing for people who the volunteers and things, but I think people who've just attended as well, maybe don't remember or realize how much it is a part of their makeup as well, you know, especially kids who've grown up here who then turn into volunteers who then bring their families here after all the years later. And I think that's kind of a a really cool thing. Like I just realized that the juror who I had juror the, the Flora show, she actually used to take classes here when she was a kid mm. and volunteered, you know, it's sort of like, Oh, I didn't even make that connection. I thought of her as being someone who was kind of really outside the realm, but I think that the, the art league and art in the park are such staples of this community that, um, that I'm hoping people have some really fun things that they can share with me and, and everybody else about why it's such a great event to attend when it is happening. So, Do you have a sense, and I haven't been tracking this, of whether any other art festivals around the Midwest, the regular ones are happening this year? Has everybody cancelled? I think there are some that are happening in person, but tentatively later in the summer. So ones that are happening in late July and August, I think are still on. Not all, but but some. I don't think that there are many in June that were scheduled that are happening live and in person. Or if they are, it's reduced, you know, the amount is reduced. So people are are getting super creative. And I encourage people who don't normally want to, you know, get out in, in all the weather, whether flooding or blisteringly hot, to go in and seek out those those sources because this is a this is a really good time to support our makers, our artists who are who depend on this these sales as their salaries. You know, this is how they get paid. So we want to make sure we're supporting all of their efforts because this money they make over the summer helps fuel them for the rest of the year. Well, before we close, I did want to say it's a little bit of sad news, so I don't really want to end on a downer, but yeah. Art in the Park did lose a really, really long-standing Art in the Park artist this week. People who buy jewelry and have been coming to Art in the Park for years will know Zeke and Marty Zewick. They are just a gorgeous couple. They've been coming to Art in the Park, I don't know, for decades. They have beautiful jewelry. They come from Edom, Texas. And last week, Marty died and it was very sudden. And I emailed with her husband, Zeke, to share our condolences. And so that's just very sad. I know a lot of people know yeah. Zeke and Marty and they will be missed. We would love to have Zeke back at some point, but I don't know how he feels about things right now, but right, um, sure. our, our condolences to them. Yeah. I think you do build relationships with people, right? Like mm. you, you, you go and visit the people that you met the year before, or even the artists who attend, they know who their booth buddies are. I had some requests come through from people who applied this year of, could I get put next to this person, you know, someone <laughs> yeah. who they, who they worked well with last year, maybe they had a routine down for selling people stuff or whatever the thing is. And that community is exists and it will exist, you know, next year as well. And when you do lose someone like that, it's, 
Yeah, leaves a little mm. hole. But yes, like you say, the camaraderie across all the artists is so wonderful. The camaraderie between the volunteers and the artists is phenomenal. I mean, there are yeah. a lot of our volunteers say, when this person arrives, will you let me know? Because I want to carry all their right. heavy boxes <laughs> and their heavy tents, and I want to be the one that sweats for them. And so that is just lovely. Well, Kelsey, we are out of time. You see how easy it is to talk about art up in the park. There's so much to cover. We could just do it forever. We exactly. could. There are so many more stories. <laughs> so maybe we will do that at some point. But um, Sounds good. for now, thank you so much, Kelsey Hammond. Thank you. Okay, bye. I do wonder if anyone will just turn up at Stevens Lake Park this weekend and expect the festival to be there. Another organization that has seen its usual summer program thwarted is the Missouri Symphony Orchestra, where its hot summer night season would be on the cusp of getting underway. So let's head to the gorgeous Missouri Theatre and check in with its effervescent Director of Development, Monica Palmer. Good morning, Monica. Good morning. I was so humbled and delighted to know that our weekly chats are the highlight of your week. Although, as I said to you, it worries me slightly that you're being (laughs) shortchanged on highlights right now and maybe you need to get out more. Maybe. Um, (laughs) Maybe you're right. (laughs) This week we are changing the format a little bit as we are on the cusp of what would have been at the start of the Missouri Symphony Orchestra's hot summer night season. But instead, it's the start of the hot summer nights at home season. So let's talk about what you have planned and then maybe we can zoom in on one particular performance that you are excited about. Yeah, of course. Well, you know, it is it is weird this time of year. Like, is usually just a mad, frantic uh, pace for for everyone involved with Missouri Symphony, and you know, it's, it's exciting because the musicians have come from all over the country and all over, from different countries, and they're practicing and they're getting ready, and it's a, a super exciting time. So last week we actually got to go into the Missouri Theater, which we haven't for a while because it's been you know shut down. The university you know facilities have been inaccessible, so we've all been working from home. But we went in because we wanted to record introductions with Maestro Kirk saying why he chose the concerts, the archival concerts that we're going to be kind of re-releasing as part of our Hot Summer Night's Greatest Hits virtual music festival. And so it was very strange to see the maestro all decked out, ready for a (laughs) concert in his performance garb, and then no orchestra and a blank stage and the maestro sitting in the front row of the theater, which it just didn't make sense. (laughs) So many things in my mind were just like, this is wrong. This is wrong. But you know, it's just, it's a sign of where we are right now in this moment. We just have to roll with these times and try to make the best of things and understand new ways of of doing things. So uh, we are excited, though, that we are able to bring music to people in this time of no live performances for the Missouri Symphony. And I think a lot of people who, especially if they were at one of these performances, are going to get a little bit of that charge that you do get when you're sitting and enjoying art in in a group together. If you were there, then I think your brain will help you remember those chills and those memories that you felt that you get in a live performance. And if if you weren't there, then you just have to use your imagination and do your best. Shut the lights down in your media room, in your TV room. Make it feel as much like you're in that space as possible and get the sound just just right and really just sink into these these performances because they truly are some amazing performances that Maestro Kirk has pulled out of the Mosey vaults for us to enjoy again. And um, they'll all be streaming on YouTube. So, you know, if you have a smart TV, you can pull that right up on the big TV or you can enjoy it on your phone or on your computer, wherever you can get on YouTube. So it's going to be a lot of fun. It's very lucky that over the years you have recorded so many of the concerts. 
Yes. We are very like we've had partners that knew what they were doing, too. So they're not just like somebody in the back with a video camera, you know, trying to get the, the best shot. These are professional productions that our friends at Mediacom did. And a lot of the music uh, was recorded by Rob at Lindervox. So the sound you're getting is very true sound that you would get in a concert performance. So we are very fortunate to have this quality of production to uh, re-release for, for people. How many years of Hot Summer Nights have there been? So there have been different kind of iterations of the Summer Festival, but the Missouri Symphony has been providing some sort of summer performance for about 40 years. So, you know, about four-fifths of our lifespan, we've been bringing some kind of live performance in the summertime to Columbia. So that's something we're very proud of. And especially, it probably wasn't the goal, but it's it's an opportunity for musicians who we've been thinking a lot about right now, you know, gig workers and people who, you know, rely on live performances for their livelihood. You know, it was an opportunity for them to have summer engagements when their home symphonies, their professional symphonies that they worked with throughout the year, were kind of on a break. And so in the summertime, there aren't a lot of uh, orchestras that are up and running. So to have a summer music festival like this was a nice opportunity, not just for our community in coming together to enjoy these beautiful performances and professional musicians, but also for the musicians themselves. That's why when you talk to the musicians or to people who have been coming to the concert, for a long time, you, you truly get a sense of like there's a reciprocal love happening here. <laughs> the musicians love Columbia. They love vacationing here. You know, it's like they're home away from home. They talk about the restaurants here and the Katy Trail and they just glow when they're talking about Columbia. So, you know, like it's touched them and you can see the same thing happening with audiences who have enjoyed their work. Well, I mean, there are thousands of orchestras around the country and around the mm-hmm. world. How does Maestro Kirk choose those musicians that are invited to come to Columbia? Well, he holds auditions. And so, you know, obviously he's looking for high quality performances and high caliber musicians. But there's something more when you're curating a group like this. You have to look at how are these people going to be living together for six weeks? What what kind of community are we going to create and what kind of life are we creating for these folks? And so some of the musicians met and fell in love here and now they come back with their families. It's really become, you know, a community and they do things off of the stage community type things like they have a soccer team and they play soccer and then or football sorry I'm saying it wrong because <laughs> a lot of them are European so um but and they you know have like international food night where they cook and they have that kind of time of of fellowship he's building a family so he does choose carefully and it takes recommendations from people who are already valued members of the symphony and brings it together like that. So it's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. So talk a bit about the concerts, the past concerts that Maestro Kirk chose to be part of this Greatest Hits season. Well, I'm a big fan of almost all of them. I'll say almost because he did choose a couple of family concerts from when I was uh, the the co MC of the family concerts. So there were a lot of cringeworthy moments for me <laughs> in those family concerts. One of them was Captain Kirk's Guide to the Musical Galaxy, where Kirk was Captain Kirk and I was the Vulcan that showed far too much emotion. <laughs> and, uh, so that was a fun one where we get to explore the current time and and what music was like and how orchestras performed. And uh, the other one was, uh, what do you like on your pizza? 
which was a family concert that explored variations on a theme. And we used our friend Kurt Merching from Shakespeare's Pizza. He came over and we rolled out pizza dough, which is the theme. And then we took the kids' suggestions for the variations on what kind of toppings we wanted to put on those pizzas. And we got some very strange suggestions. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, two, two fun family concerts, that's part of it. We'll also have Masterworks concerts. We'll have Pops concerts with with some fun guests. We had an Elvis impersonator. We had a Sleep at the Wheel, a country band. We have a night of opera. We have a really fun night that's celebrating the music of Broadway, which, you know, is... my favorite. <laughs> and so we got some amazing performers. Melissa Bohan Webel, she uh, kind of did the, the one last year. It was a grand night for singing, and she got a lot of her theater friends together to help. And so we're talking not just beautiful voices, but she's got them doing choreography. These are semi staged performances from uh, some of our Rodgers and Hammerstein favorites. So that is a night you definitely don't want to miss. And all of these are up on our Facebook page now, <clears throat> all of these events, and on our website. So if you want to look through a scan, and see which concerts you want to highlight and and make sure you catch. They're all up there now for you to uh, pick and choose and read about. This first weekend, we're going to kick it off just like we would kick off the live one, which would be with this concert that Maestro Kirk always calls Strike Up the Band. And this was this is historically done in Stevens Amphitheater. So it's, it's a free community concert open to the public. We use it as kind of like a box of chocolates sort of uh, musical sampling. <laughs> kind of <laughs> gives everyone a little taste of what's coming up in the entire season. And it, it removes that barrier because I think some people th- see a barrier between where they are in their musical knowledge or where they are in their wherever, whatever, you know, it it kind of like is an effort to to break that down and say, no, 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 this is music that is here for everybody to enjoy. We're out here at the park. You can take a sample here and then come over to the theater and and join us too. So that's what that that concert has always been. And so we're going to kick it off on Thursday, June 11th with that. And I think you'll you'll hear a lot of fun things in there from like a Sousa march to movie music and a little bit of opera in there too, I think. So nice mix of that. And then Friday, we have our collaboration from... 2018 with Missouri Contemporary Ballet. So for you, Diana, there's something to do for your eyes mm. and there's something <laughs> something for your ears as well. And these are some scintillating performances from uh, Karen Grundy's dancers. And this choreography is just oh, unbelievable. And one of our favorites, Bolero, will be featured <laughs> in uh, this, this concert. So that's on the 12th. And then on the 13th, we'll have Symphonic Stories, which is a Masterworks concert. And we'll have Max Brooks' Rich and Seductive Concerto for Clarinet and Violin. And one of my favorite pieces, Rimsky-Korsakov Scheherazade. So Two, two favorites there. So that's just our first weekend. So put those on your calendar. Put those on our calendar. And then yeah. next week we can talk about the next week that's coming. Otherwise, we'll just all be in overload if there's too much information <laughs> right. all at once. Just, just take little bites. And, <laughs> you know, and, and don't rule out something like a chamber concert or a masterworks concert just because you don't know that music. Because one of the things that I love about this is that Kirk has really taken this um, introduction thing seriously. I came to him, I said, so I'm going to have you record these introductions to the concert. So I want you to just sit down with people 
and talk to them about these concerts and tell them why you chose it. What did you love about it? And then give them some things to look for. Like, tell them about things that you made a mistake on. And of course, he made a face like, you know, I never make mistakes. But there is one. <laughs> there is one concert where he points out a mistake that he made where he tried to bring in the woodwinds too early and the woodwinds ignored him and they played it the right way. <laughs> so, so answers on a postcard. If you spot the error, you get a free ticket for next year's Hot Summer Nights. <laughs> yes, yes. I love it. It's perfect. <laughs> Monica, we're out of time, but thank you so much as always. And let's talk a little bit more next week about what's coming up for the following week on the Hot Summer Nights Greatest Hits season. Deal. Thank you so much. (laughs) Bye-bye. Last stop this morning is the world of books. But this week, instead of chatting to Skylark owner Alex George, we're going to chat to another local author, Jill Orr, whose new book, The Full Scoop, the latest and possibly last in the Riley Ellison mystery series, is out next week. Hello, Jill. It is lovely to have you back on the show. Hello. It's lovely to be here. Now, it is almost exactly a year since you were last on Speaking of the Arts, and at which point your third book in the Riley Ellison mystery series called The Ugly Truth had just come out. And I think your latest novel, The Full Scoop, was where at that time? Was it already at the publishers or were you still doing final edits? I think I was still doing just the very final edits or maybe I had turned it in. I don't know. I I lose track. The minute I turn it in, it's like it almost ceases to exist for me for a little while anyway. (laughs) But um, yeah, it was all done. and, And for the last year, I've had to be really careful not to spoil anything from the fourth book. So it's, I'm very happy that the book is almost out because then I can talk freely about everything that happens. I guess it must be difficult when you're on a book tour for, for one book in a series and you know what happens in the next book. (laughs) Um, And that's really what's in your head because obviously the book that you're talking about, you let go of a year before. And so that must be tricky. Did you let any secrets escape? Did you, were you at any book launches and you suddenly thought, Oh, (laughs) Uh, I hope not. I don't think so. I will say um, I had a very interesting experience. Well, actually, something that just happened last night, there was a a person who read the has read the fourth book already because their copy got shipped early from the bookseller. And we were sitting sort of in this, you know, socially distant group of people outside. And she said something about like one of the big spoilers from book four. And I had to immediately just be like, Shh, please, please. I don't think, you know, I don't think everyone's heard that news yet. So <laughs> I didn't spill the beans, but someone did. <laughs> so fill us a little bit in on who Riley Ellison is and the journey we've been on with her so far. So Riley is, you know, I always say she's, she starts the series within the first book, which is called The Good Byline. And she's 24 years old. And despite, you know, her young age, she's kind of obsessed with obituaries. And so she ends up getting drawn into solving crimes in her small town of Tuttle Corner, Virginia, through the obituary column in her local newspaper. So that's sort of like the macro idea of the series. What I think the series is really more about is kind of her development and her growth as a young woman, figuring out who she wants to be, what she wants to do in this world, what her place is. Um, Her grandfather was killed violently, and um, that's sort of been a driving force for her. That happened when she was about 17 years old. So she's compelled 
to find out that crime was unsolved. So she's compelled forward throughout the books in the series to sort of see if she can't bring some resolution to that. And I can tell you and tell readers that um, the trail of breadcrumbs that I've left in books one, two, and three does finally get solved in book four. We do find out the truth. <laughs> that, I think, will be a relief to anyone that has followed the Riley stories. I mean, it's it's very interesting. You have her solving mysteries in every book, but this is underlying mystery that runs in the background throughout. And, and you are very parsimonious with the information about, you know, what happened to her grandfather. We know that he was murdered. We know that the general opinion was that he committed suicide, but she doesn't believe that. And she's trying to convince one of her co-workers, the obituary editor, that who was an old friend of her grandfather's. And in fact, it wasn't suicide, it was murder. But we don't really know what happened. We don't know why he was murdered. It just kind of trickles along in the background. So I, I'm wondering, when you started writing the first book, The Goodbye Line, was it your intention to write four books? And and was it always your intention that there'd be this mystery running through all of them? Uh, well, that's a really good question. So part of the answer is I, I hoped there would be more than one book. But when I wrote The Goodbye Line, I didn't even have a literary agent. I didn't know if anyone would ever read the book. So I was sort of going on this optimism that, yes, to, in, my, in my mind and in my heart, the story always had a wider arc to it than just that one story. But when I wrote it, I really didn't know what would happen. So when The Goodbye Line came out, the publisher pretty quickly ordered two more books. So I knew there would be three books when I was kind of planning out how I would sort of deliver the information about this mystery that runs through all the books about the grandfather, like you described. And then as it happened, I wasn't able to tell the full story in three books. And I needed another book <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> I like to call it job security. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But I, but I just couldn't, I couldn't get it all in, in an organic way in three books. And so fortunately, my publisher has been a great support. And she was thrilled to have another Riley book. And, and we were able to really dig in and tell the whole story in the full scoop, which is where the title comes from. <laughs> so in book four, we are solely looking at the death of her grandfather. There's not, is there a side mystery happening that she's solving at the same time? Or is this really, this is about her grandfather? It's mainly about her grandfather. Now there is, a, there is another mystery that's very intimately connected to that. And I really can't say more because <laughs> um, <laughs> it's one of those spoiler things. The third book ends on a bit of a cliffhanger. Mm. Um, and I and I did get a lot of emails from people being like, what? I can't believe you did that. Um, and I just kept promising them, all will be revealed in book four. All will be revealed. And so the sort of cliff that people are left hanging on at the end of book three, that's where book four picks up truly like almost right after that. So yeah, there's a little side mystery, but it's all connected to what happened to Riley's grandfather. And her quest to bring justice for his death. I'm going to read the last sentence of book three, because it's not giving anything away. It just says, I stared at my phone for another few moments. And then before I chickened out, I took a deep breath and pressed the name of the one person I knew would always answer my call. End of book. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that was, I have to say it, it was deliciously powerful to, to do that. I don't know why I enjoyed that so much, but I did. I really did. Because <laughs> <laughs> no, nobody reading it loved it. Everyone's like, no, don't leave us here. I know. Totally. <laughs> when you started out writing the goodbye line, did you know had you worked out how the how the mystery of her grandfather would resolve? Or I know you say you you write organically. You just you don't really know where the books are going until you're you know writing them and the characters are kind of guiding you. Did you know the answer to her grandfather's murder at the beginning of book one, or have you been working it out the whole time? A little bit of both, actually. I I knew what happened to him. I just didn't know who did it. <laughs> that makes any sense. <laughs> <laughs> it probably doesn't, but I sort of knew, and I always had an idea of how that mystery would be solved. But one really, really neat thing that happened while I was writing this last book was, again, I can't say too much, but I had a chance, a real life chance encounter with a, a person who lives in Colombia who I didn't know before. And I got to know, and actually that person's story ended up making its way into the book and really influencing how I decided to tell the rest of Riley's grandfather's story. So basically that encounter defined the whole of book four almost. A hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> oh but my it was goodness. really cool. <laughs> and, and the book is out next week. Is that right? That's correct. It's out on Tuesday. <gasps> Okay, so all will be revealed next Tuesday. I promise. <laughs> and there are no advanced copies sneaking around that we can, you know, go and get because we're, we can't wait until Tuesday. I mean, I hope not. I don't know, though. <laughs> well, I can't wait to read it. Um, they've, been, they've been a fabulous journey. But this is the last one, right? There's no Riley ends at the end of book four. That is correct. It is the end of Riley's adventures for now. That must have been very hard saying goodbye to Riley. I have really, really missed the characters in the book. I will tell you that. I have, and my publisher misses them. We occasionally will email and she said, oh, I was just thinking about Holman and blah, blah, blah. You know, we'll just have these conversations. They feel so real to you after all these years. But I feel good that, I feel good of where the story has been left for now, for sure. Do you think she may come back to you in later books or? Yes. So, so what we decided, what my publisher and I decided is we're leaving the door open. Um, so nothing has been closed firmly, but we also decided it was time to, to move on to another project. And I actually have a nonfiction book coming out in November with the same publisher. And I'm so excited about that. And it's been it's actually been a real treat as an author to get to work on something nonfiction. When I sort of left Riley behind, I didn't feel like I was cheating on her with a new character because I, I jumped into nonfiction. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that's been really great fun. Can you tell us just very quickly what it's about? It's called How Not to Be Old, Even If You Are. And so it is a, it's sort of a tongue in cheek guide for the not so young among us, myself included in that category. It sort of pokes fun at generational politics, you know, things that boomers do and Gen X and millennials and Gen Z. And it, it, I mean, it makes fun of everybody, but it's, it's mini and micro essays on the experience of being middle-aged today. Well, we will look forward to that in November. Hope Riley comes back. I've, I've really enjoyed 
She's a fun character to hang out with. Jill, thank you so much. And uh, let's catch up again when your next book comes out. Sounds wonderful. Thank you, Diane. I appreciate it so much. And once again, that is it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more news from the local art scene. Until then, stay arty, Columbia.